Let us pray. Lord Christ, help us to look to you upon the cross and see the source of our salvation. Amen. Please be seated. This weekend, there are so many anniversaries and commemorations that I hardly know where to preach. No matter where I look, I am struck by what today's scriptures about sin and death and healing say to all these convergences. It's a lot to pack into just over 10 minutes, so for your sakes, I'm leaving out any mention of daylight savings time. <laughs> but I do need to lift up the anniversary that is likely foremost in all of our minds the one-year anniversary of the COVID pandemic. The World Health Organization made that anniversary March 11th. But a headline in the Atlantic reminds us that there is no one anniversary of this profoundly strange and difficult year. There are millions. And so today is the day that we feel the effect of the one that hit St. Martin's community so profoundly that first Sunday when we had to shut our doors to live worship, in-person activities. And when we were thrust into that dizzying question of how a community that so loves to be together and so loves to worship together would now find ways to pray and support and love one another in the face of all of these strange new rules. And one year later, we are restored to an in-person capacity of about 20% in our worship space, with scores more turning in, tuning in through computer or phone. And church viewers, don't you think for one moment that your presence does not go unnoticed or uncherished? You can see me, but I can only imagine you. And I do. Please know that we do. So here we all are, gathered today around these scriptures, these biblical stories about sin and healing and snakes. Now, Jarrett reminded me this week that our first reading from the book of Numbers is this rare biblical story about vaccination. Because people are healed by a little bit of the thing that's killing them. And so in that case, the timing is uncanny. <laughs> but it's not a simple story. And it's important to think about that story because it helps us to understand what Jesus is talking about in John's gospel today. So in this first reading from Numbers, Israel is wandering in the wilderness with God to the promised land, and we're at one of those moments where the people whine and complain against God and Moses because they hate the food. <laughs> that manna that God provided for them, and they accuse God of freeing them from Egypt only to kill them in the desert. They are turning away from the trusting relationship 
that marks their covenant with God. They are rejecting it. And in response to their complaints, God sends snakes whose bite induces a burning pain and causes death among some of them. Now, we have to remember that to Israel, who, is yo- who has yoked its life to God in the covenant, that Israel's whole world is maintained and upheld by their God. All good gifts and all not-so-good gifts come from that God. So they don't blame other gods, and they don't blame their enemies for the snakes. They know where those snakes are from, and they know why. They come from God, and their bites serve to illustrate the sting of Israel's own act of turning away from God. It reflects their sin in their own bodies. And they get the message. They admit that they have sinned. And so in their contrition, they ask Moses to pray to God to take the snakes away, please. And God hears their prayer And God leaves the snakes right where they are. (laughs) And instead, God instructs Moses to craft a figure of one of those poisonous serpents out of bronze and place it on a pole and lift it above the people so that whenever someone is bitten, they are to look upon it in order to be healed by God. Now, here's what I love about this story. If God really wanted to do some magic to take the reminder of Israel's sin away, God could just have removed the snakes. But the snakes remained. And I think God does something kind of genius here. As an antidote to the brokenness that comes from turning hearts away from God, the brokenness that comes from rejecting God. God provides a means for Israel to turn its attention back to the God who heals them. When they look at that snake on the pole, they see two things. An emblem of their sinfulness, the painful consequence of rejecting the love of God, and They see the source of the healing of that broken relationship, the forgiveness that can come only from God. They must face their sin, and they must face the God who forgives it. And it's a risky move on God's part, because it might be easy to think that the healing comes from the bronze snake on the stick itself. And eventually... Hundreds and hundreds of years later, King Hezekiah has that bronze snake destroyed because the people began to worship it. There seems no end to how wrong God's people can get it, us included, and how many times and how many ways God has to invite us to return. And Jesus, Jesus knows his people all too well. 
Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. He says in today's Gospel from John. Now he, of course, is talking about his death on the cross. In the Gospel of John, Jesus lifted on the cross is Jesus glorified. But looking on the cross in that way requires us to see two things. It requires us to recognize what we did to cause that painful breach in the first place. And it requires us to recognize whose healing closes that breach altogether. The tortured person on the cross is the embodiment of what our sin looks like on the flesh of an incarnate God. It is the embodiment of what rejecting the love of God does in the world and to the world. And who would not want to look away from that, whether in shame or in denial? And yet... Here is where the healing lies as well. Because if the crucifixion works the way that lifting the bronze serpent did, then the act of facing it with a driving desire to be healed of the wound that our sin creates is essential to how God works the repair. That's why we keep lifting high the cross. Now, this image of Jesus on the cross is so embedded in my psyche and my religious imagination as a Christian that I tend to see it everywhere, especially this weekend. And I want to lift up two examples. One of them is the anniversary yesterday of the death of Breonna Taylor. Now, as you may recall, the initial story went by almost unnoticed until the call to say her name grew louder and louder in the growing outcry against innocent black people being killed by police and former police. Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd among them. Now, Breonna Taylor was the Louisville, Kentucky woman who was gunned down in a late-night police raid of her apartment, though she and her boyfriend had committed no crime. And a year later, a federal investigation is ongoing, and no one has been held responsible for her death. But I lift up Brianna Taylor today because her image prompts us to, as members of a society founded on racism, and as Christians who recognize our salvation on the cross, to face two things. What sin looks like on a systemic scale. How it shapes and distorts lives over time and over distance, how it implicates any who would hold up that system over one that reflects the repair God desires for the world. And it reminds us of our need for a Savior. 
not one who magics away the consequences or the evidence of our sin, not one who takes the snakes away, but one who draws us into a life of repair. When Breonna Taylor or Ahmaud Arbery or George Floyd or countless others are lifted up we see that sin is not just a matter of individual choices that cause little tears in the cloth of our life with God, but it rents our social fabric. It misshapes our world. And this is what we must see anytime we face the sin of racism that our society has been drawn so deeply into. It is not our only sin, but it is one that teaches us a lot about all the others. It is concrete and real and ever before us as a people, especially as a people of God. To desire to die to the sin of racism when we look upon the cross is to desire to help fashion an entirely different kind of society, and that requires the saving work of God, who so loves this world. Now, the other life that I want to live up today is that of the right Reverend Barbara Harris, who also died one year ago yesterday at the age of 89. Now, when she was elected suffragan bishop of the Diocese of Massachusetts in 1988, she was the first woman bishop in the Episcopal Church, which was also a first for the whole Anglican communion, that the distinction belonged to a black woman lifted it even higher. Now, for some, that small act of justice for women and for people of color really stung. She received hate mail and death threats. Recalling her consecration, Barbara Harris said, the Boston Police Department offered me a bulletproof vest to wear that day, which I declined. I thought, if some idiot is going to shoot me, what better place to go than at an altar? She had not followed a traditional path to priesthood when she was ordained at the age of 50, having never gone to formal seminary. She was a powerful voice for civil rights and social justice, a truth teller and a mind speaker. She was born in Philadelphia and grew up just down the street in Germantown. So I lift her up because she is ours, as well as the churches, as well as God's. And when we look at Barbara Harris, I think she would want us to see two things. All that we fall short of on our own in what she would call this Good Friday world. And all that God makes happen through those willing to turn fully to the healing, world-changing, salvation-bringing love of Christ because this is how God so loves the world. Amen.